Ho, ho, ho. Happy Thanksgiving. Not Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 ho. Let's have some fun with phonics. Happy Thanksgiving. It is Friday, the 27th of November, 2020, here in beautiful Bayside, mostly unlocked Victoria, with some but not all borders open. And uh, that means it's the day after Thanksgiving here, which means where you might be in the Northern Hemisphere, it's actual Thanksgiving. So happy holidays. Happy holidays everywhere. Thanksgiving. Um, I hope everyone is traveling and really, really getting close and not wearing a mask and, you know, just absolutely cramming airports in the U.S. Um, like one absolute giant 3,000 mile wide Petri dish. Because I really, I really want to see what's going to happen after Thanksgiving in the U.S. when many of the governors are saying, don't travel, don't, don't travel on the most hallowed day of the year. You know, the, the one day that people look forward to getting together with their families. It's not so much Christmas or Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, um, Eid, or anything like that. Thank you. The biggest travel day of the uh, year in the U.S. is Thanksgiving. Is Thanksgiving time. So um, travel on, good travelers, travel on. And uh, Thanksgiving, when I grew up, was... Uh, welcome to the show, by the way. Welcome to the show. You might even you might think you're listening to some bizarre holiday historical travel mode, but this is the way it is. The official, and there's only one. There's no doppelganger. There's no duplicate. There's no twin. The only one Bobby Galinsky podcast. Episode 36. A perfect 36. Perfect 36, 24, 36. And... Uh, you know, growing up with Thanksgiving, and especially going up in Sioux City, Iowa, right in the heartland, the heartland, was a, a quite an event. A lot of people, if you don't know, a little bit of the micro-history is in 1621, the Plymouth colonists in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and the Wampanoag Native Americans, Indians, shared an autumn harvest feast that is acknowledged today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations in the colonies. For more than 200 years, days of Thanksgiving were celebrated by individual colonies and states. But what really is what happened in Thanksgiving is that, uh, let me kind of set the stage for you. The winter of 1620 for the colonies for the pilgrims, the settlers in the U.S., was fucking cold. It was insanely cold and tons of snow and everything. And uh, the settlers there weren't such, shall we say, you know, elite farmers. They'd mostly been like city people and cobblers and, you know, this, you know, your your basic, almost post-medieval kind of, you know, crafts and, you know, stuff like that uh, uh, that came over and some prisoners and a few things, but not as many as Australia, from from bloody blighty from England 
to uh, the new world, the new world. Yeah, one of my favorite Terrence Malick films, as I have said many times, if you want to watch an ultimate Thanksgiving film, watch The New World with Colin Farrell, the amazing Terrence Malick film, with some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear. And uh, anyway, the winter was fucking cold, and it wiped out a lot of the colony, notwithstanding smallpox and, and everything else and all of that. So... You know, here you got all these settlers, these Englishmen, the white people, the white people, you know, with the white, white privilege. There was a white privilege in 1620, let me tell you. And uh, then you had the, uh, the very farming adept Wampanoag Native American Indians that, uh, you know, were cruising and growing corn and, you know, all kinds of good things like that and staples. So the American, the Americans. The, uh, the pilgrims, the would-be Americans, the new Americans, made these ginger-like tiptoey steps to the Indian colonies. And, you know, they were in rags. They were freezing. They were, they, they were absolutely freaking out. And here it was autumn again, and, and it cold, had, had it, cold had struck early again. It was a freezing October. And uh, they were getting ready for one more winter. It was going to wipe them out. And so they sat down with the very, very generous and gentle Native Americans who showed them some inside tips, probably on YouTube, showing some inside tips and uh, on how to, you know, farm and grow corn and maize and, you know, bake bread and things like that so they could survive and uh, shared a lovely dinner, lovely dinner with Native animals, you know, like turkeys and fowl and, you know, all of that stuff. And the pilgrims pretty much thanked them by killing every one of them eventually, um, either with, with a musket or with smallpox. It's kind of the American way. Thanks for the meal. <coughs> no, um, that's, uh, that's not a far take on what happened, though. Come visit. Come... Make this your home, meet the natives, kill them. And that's what we call progress. But there's no reparations. There's no reparations. We named all of our best sports teams after Indians, like the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, things like that. And now they've taken that away from us. But uh, Thanksgiving used to be, in my day, growing up in Sioux City, is that everybody would get together and uh, my mom would make an amazing turkey, an amazing turkey. She liked to cook turkey all throughout the year. In fact, we had a cousin, we had a cousin, the Potashes, that um, owned the biggest poultry farm in the area. And we always got tons of turkeys from them. In my dad's company, which became my brother's and my company, which is now my brother's company, which was originally my grandfather's company and started in 1871, the Sioux City Foundry Company, which is still the oldest continuously operating family business in the Midwest since 1871. Shout out to my brother there and his family. Um, we used to give away turkeys to all the employees at Christmas. They used to be fresh turkeys. And then um, when I got older, they went to frozen turkeys as a bit of technology came in. And uh, it was a little bit different throwing fresh turkeys off the back of a truck to uh, people waiting, waiting below, distributing them as it parked at the office. And then a year, one year, suddenly, they're frozen turkeys. You're expecting a fresh turkey, which has a certain pliability when you catch it. 
<laughs> that suddenly this this fucking ten pound brick here have a turkey, Jim. <laughs> oh man, probably some turkey related injuries there. I'll never forget that. But getting back to the point of this, the point of Thanksgiving, is that uh, my mom would make the turkey, and we'd have our immediate family over and some relatives and things like that. And it was an epic, epic pig out. And I mean, you just ate be beyond comprehension. And then flipped on the TV because it was all the great NFL sports games, the uh, football, the gridiron, as we call it over here, the gridiron, and uh, traditional Thanksgiving days, which was often the Detroit Lions a team I never really quite cottoned on to, and the Dallas Cowboys, which was a traditional Thanksgiving game. But uh, then, in the middle of the afternoon, you woke up from your food coma, your, your stupor, your, your stomach looking like, you know, some girl in her late trimester, just bloated, really about to give birth, and you just wandered into the kitchen, and you had more. You had another complete meal, made some turkey sandwiches, and then watched some more football and drank like a fish, and then just absolutely overwhelmed. Your body would just shut down and after the game, and your team would always lose, no matter who you were on Thanksgiving. It's, it was uh, just traditional that your team would lose. It was just some strange parallel universe thing. No one ever had a team that won. And uh, then, middle of the night, you wake up, and yes, you were hungry. And you'd walk into the kitchen, open the fridge, pull out that turkey, and you'd eat again. And eat and eat and eat. And that was Thanksgiving. Um, which was pretty much a lot of many people's entire year this year, thanks to the Wu flu, uh, an everyday event of just absolutely soporific eating and sleeping, and eat again, sleep, eat, sleep, repeat. So uh, that is Thanksgiving, and um, got some American friends and a digital friend shouting out there to um, great journalist James Morrow, known as Prick Fork, on Twitter and Instagram, who is in isolation, ISO, in some obscure hotel in Sydney, having come back from the U.S. reporting on the never-ending election. The never-ending election! The never-ending election! The never-ending story uh, was on TV last night, by the way. And if you haven't ever watched that film, that's a catchy little, catchy little family film. But, uh, and also to my good friend, Seth, wherever he is, Seth, another uh, American, enjoying, I'm sure, a big meal with his family now somewhere here in Victoria. So that kind of brings us up to where we are. And now you know it's time for the rest of the story because it's the run-up now to Christmas. It all happens now. It's okay to put up the Christmas tree. Christmas ornaments are everywhere. Um, Hanukkah bushes are everywhere. We, we've already been to the city and completely stocked up on Walker's shortbread biscuits. I think personally the best, even though we're a bit commercial, yeah, you can have your handmade ones from, you know, 
Sophie Marceau's, you know, bakery factory in Marseille or whatever, but the Walker's Scottish shortbread biscuits are amazing. So we stocked up a few weeks ago. And we stocked up again a couple of days ago because we ate all the holiday ones that uh, we had stashed. Because as soon as you break that seal and open the tin, game over, bitches. So today, lots to talk about. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about the the amazing, and it is amazing, intimacy code. What's an intimacy code? It's the MEAA, the Media Entertainment Arts and Alliance Intimacy Code. So when you're shooting a film or TV series here, so you don't have any sexual problems. And we're going to talk about the code and what you can do and what you can't do, what you can't even do alone, so to speak. So if you're sitting at home, don't get any ideas like Jeffrey Tubin. We're going to talk about the very sad and very disturbing reveal that um, some Australian soldiers might not, might not have done the right thing while stationed in the Mideast in Afghanistan, um, which is very disturbing. And not disturbing to me that it happened. It's a war, but disturbing, more disturbing to me, the witch hunt on the better part of the Australian forces than the bad things that humans can do in war. And I won't pretend to know a lot. I'll just pretend to know what I know. And I never served. Disclaimer. Uh, in fact, studiously tried to avoid Vietnam because I am a total coward. But um, I do have an opinion on it. And uh, because I can do this podcast and I can do whatever I want, it's because I'm free. And uh, I'm free because people have fought for that freedom. And we must never forget that, nor vilify soldiers in a witch hunt without knowing all the facts. We are going to talk about a few predictions in my Nostradamus void, of course, Mercury no longer retrograde, turning direct, psychic knowledge of what's going to be happening in 21, 2021. And lost and found? Have you lost a priceless painting? Well, better look in your closet. Could be behind that other painting that's already there. And I don't mean behind the frame, but underneath the service. A very famous lost painting discovered at the uh, National Gallery this past week. And uh, we're going to talk about Nietzsche. Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. Because um, under Today in History, he is forming an integral part of what a lot of people are talking about in this nihilist atmosphere. We'll be getting to Gretsch guitars. Yes, we are. We're finally getting the Gretsch guitars and episode three of the adventures of the Hollywood con queen. As we start to close in on suspects and culprits, all of that great clothes, great women's clothes too. Things for you ladies while you're not reversing the Hubble telescope in space or blowing up the challenger and the rest. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is 
Well, one person that's never really had the fear much is the Pope. And on today in history, on this day in 1095, Pope Urban II. You know, I didn't know there was a Pope Urban, even the first, until I did a little bit of research. So um, I guess this is urban legend. Pope Urban, or maybe it was related to Keith Urban, who knows? Pope Urban II preaches the first crusade. The Crusades were good. The Crusades were a good thing. Anything to go, you know, sort out the uh, Islamic world. In 1295, English King Edward I calls what later became known, became known as the Model Parliament, extending the authorities of its representatives. And you, you can't discount those English. Those English. They just, uh, they just keep coming back. In fact, this week we've been just binging on The Crown, season four. So... Um, I love a good monarchy. We love the monarchy. And uh, we'll be talking about that a bit later too, especially some of the more disturbing, to me, disturbing parts of um, some of the cousins. What was the uh, eventuality of some of the lesser known cousins of the crown? Um, spoiler alert, okay. In 1493, Christopher Columbus famous for being born on Columbus Day, returned to La Navidad colony. <gasps> Lo and behold, finding it destroyed by the first Native American uprising against Spanish rule. Those fucking Indians could not be trusted. No, I don't blame them. Sorry, that's a joke. Um, the Spanish were cruel. Cruel, cruel Spaniards they were. So the Taino Canique Canobo led his people to attack the settlement after the brutal treatment they received from the garrison who disobeyed Columbus's orders. See, Columbus was basically a bit of a pacifist. He was a conqueror and a pacifist. He was kind of a good guy. He was a good leader. However, as soon as he left town, as soon as he went and crossed the border, because the borders were open, because they didn't have the woo flu back then, they only had the plague. You know, even during the plague, nobody closed the borders. Oh, oh my God, the plague. The, the 200 million people are dying. Can, can we come into your country? Yeah, yeah, no worries, mate. Come on. But uh, when Columbus left town in, uh, in his Bentley, he left a couple of people behind in charge. Brutal, mean, nasty, nasty Spaniards. And they were mean to the Indians. So the Indians had all the impetus and right in the world to just... Kill the fuck out of those Spanish. The Spanish have been pretty mean throughout history. Um, let's not forget the Inquisition. Nobody forgets the Inquisition. And, you know, I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to go to some of those tortures and things like the Iron Maiden. Not the band. And, you know, the Catherine Wheel. And uh, the mask. Oh, God. Anyway. 1807. Portuguese royal family in its court of nearly 15,000 people. What a court. Leave Lisbon for their colony of Brazil to, yes, you don't leave unless there's a problem, to escape invading Napoleonic troops. And in 1895, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobles will establish the Nobel Prize. Well, well, well. And there have been some absolute doozies over the years. Now, 
Let's get into more fun things. On this day, in film and TV, in 2013, what film became the highest grossing animated film of all time? Hint, beating its predecessor from the same studio, The Lion King. Hint, starring Idina Menzel and Kristen Bell. Think, think, think. Come on, sing it along with me. Sing it along with me. Let it go, let it go. Can't let it hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Wait Yes, Frozen. Frozen. If you guessed Frozen, you're a winner. And if you didn't, you are pretty fucking unawares and socially stupid. But I know none of you are like that because if you're listening to this podcast, you are a genius and exceedingly good looking. So um, that's what happened in film and TV. But let's go over the music. On this day in 1967, huge day in my life. I was, you know, just barely 14. But the Beatles released Magical Mystery Tour. And boy, did I play the grooves, white, white privilege grooves on that record over and over and over and over. And in 1961, in sport, Gordie Howe, one of the greats of the greats. If you don't know who Gordie Howe is, you don't know ice hockey. And if you don't know ice hockey, you don't know one of the three greatest sports in history. And no, none of the other two are cricket or rugby. Thank you. If rugby is the game they play in heaven, I, I hope... All the fans just die now because whew, that is hell to have to watch rugby. But less hell than it used to be because I did watch a little bit of Origin. And um, I do like the big hits, as we know. The big collisions. The big collisions. But in 1961, Gordie Howe became the first man. Man. It's a man sport. Thank you. There's no women's hockey league. To play in 1,000 NHL games. Amazing. Amazing. Birthdays? Jimi Hendrix. Bruce Lee. Whoa, man. Have we got some serious Sagittarians here. And Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow, Zero Dark Thirty. First woman to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director. Amazing. And, um, a good all-rounder. She's done a lot of great films. Now, we're going to backtrack two years, though, because two years ago, on this day, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche was in Turin, Italy, and had a very, very bad day. If you're not familiar with Nietzsche, Nietzsche, who was born in 1844, was the German philosopher, cultural critic, composer, poet, and philologist whose work has exerted a profound influence on modern intellectual history, having begun his career as a classical philologist before turning to philosophy. He became the youngest person ever to hold the chair of classical philology at the University of Basel, which my wife and I have visited the outskirts of in eight to, what was that? That was the volume on the computer. Sorry about that. In eight to see, there you go. We're just human. We're just human. Was that meant to be? Are you a nihilist? Was that meant to be? Is life meaningless? Or did that just happen? Anyway, 
the University of Basel in 1869 at the age of 64. However, Nietzsche resigned in 1879 due to health problems that plagued him most of his life and completed much of his core writing in the following decade. In 1889, at age 44, he suffered a collapse and afterward a complete loss of his mental faculties. He lived his remaining years in the care of his mom until her death in 1897, and then with his sister, Elisabeth Furster Nietzsche, lived until he died in 1900. However, on this day, on this day in 1889, Nietzsche suffered a mental breakdown. It is said, although disputed, that two policemen approached him after he caused a public disturbance in the streets of Turin. What happens remains partially unknown, but the oft-repeated tale, and one I'm repeating now, from shortly after his death states that Nietzsche witnessed the flogging of a horse at the other end of the Piazzo Carlo Alberto, ran to the horse, threw his arms around its neck to protect it, then collapsed to the ground. I love that story, because I believe it. I want to believe it. And I'm not a nihilist. A nihilist meaning the rejection of all religious and moral principles. That's nihilism in the belief that life is meaningless, like that beep on my computer. A nihilist is a man who judges that the real world ought not to be, ought not to be, and that the world as it ought to be does not exist. So according to this view, and this is quite prescient today, our existence, our actions, suffering, willing, feeling has no meaning. This quote, end quote, in vain is the nihilist pathos, an inconsistency on the part of the nihilists. And that's from Friedrich Nietzsche's KSA stroke 12.9, taken from The Will to Power, translated. Now, why that means a lot to me in this particular time in space is his moral aim and will to power is primarily Nietzsche's analysis of reality. What is your analysis of reality? He finds an impulse, and stay with me for just a few moments, of this sort at the bottom of human nature. As we see everything on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and social media and people wanting to destroy the world and people wanting to save the world and people thinking they want to save it by destroying it. Everything gets quite misconstrued. The doctrine is originally philosophical, psychological, and cosmological and has really nothing to do with ethics. So-and-so, man and the world are made. Here lies the bottom spring or springs, such as its meaning. As a matter of fact, Nietzsche was not laudatory of power in his early days, nor was he unqualifiedly so in his second period, and some kinds of power did not have his admiration, even in the last period. Indeed, power in and of itself, again, from his moral aim and will to power, was never a standard to Nietzsche. And since there is so much misconception on this point, it may be well to bring out the fact clearly at the outset and then later indicate the connection between power and the will to it 
and the general ethical aim which he proposes, as stated in an earlier article. And so much of this ties into what's going on in the U.S. election right now, because use is made by some of an incident in Nietzsche's early life, when he was caught out in a thunderstorm and felt, as he said, an incomparable elevation, an incomparable elevation in witnessing the lightning, the tempest, the hail, free non-ethical forces, pure will, untroubled by the intellect. It was an experience such as any reflecting student harassed in various ways might have and is essentially Schopenhauerian in the manner in which it is described. But though he felt the glory of nature's life, he did not set up nature as a model then or at any time. In a striking passage of one of his later books, Beyond Good and Evil, he speaks of the impossibility of living according to nature. Nature, he says, is without measure, aim, consideration, pity, or justice, at once fearful, waste and uncertain, indifference itself being power. The Stoics, he observes, really put an ideal into nature and then found the ideal natural. So, bringing us up to the point of this conversation, to be determined by our environment and acts and occurrences rather than shape it is to him a sign of decadence. Much that looks like a simple effect of environment is, he urges, really the result of an active adaptation from within. A genius, he says, is not explained by the conditions of his rise, and he counts it as one of the weaknesses of modern life that we have forgotten how to act and only react and only react on incitement from without, examples being historians, critics, analyzers, interpreters, observers, collectors, readers, and science in general, et al., who merely note what it is and do not create. People who merely note what it is and do not create. That is all of us at some point. It is from nowhere, save from within and from the innermost impulses of our nature, that Nietzsche takes his moral ideal. And I just found that quite prescient here so many years later, way so many years later. That was back in 1880, over 100 years ago. And I think it's quite apt on what has become of our society, our modernity, what we call genius and what we call important now. Now, what I call important is, of course, what clothes I'm wearing while I podcast, what I drank this week, who's winning the election, and being allowed to drive unfettered without the Politburo telling me where I can go. But just a little bit of philology, philosophy, and intellectual reflection. In order to make this show seem like it's a really smart show, that could be my... Uh, my underlying theme. So by talking about a genius or would-be genius, describing the fact that many geniuses do not really exist at all, but only in our mind and are incorrect geniuses, if there's such a thing as a correct genius, is 
life meaningless? Is it all an accident? Should give you pause to ponder and wonder. What the hell is your podcaster talking about? Well, it's a science. It's only a science. And that concludes Today in History and takes us to the Mighty Mighty Theremin. The Mighty Mighty Theremin for this week's episode of Science Bitches. Science Bitches. One of the highly recommended and long-awaited parts of the podcast each week. So I am told by people that I would not even consider versed in science or reasonably, you know, interested in anything outside of the fabric on the seat of the car they're sitting on en route to the pub because it won't be leather. And uh, they love it. We all love science bitches, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Check out the big brain on Brad. You're a smart motherfucker, that's right. Yep, and you'll be one smart motherfucker too after you've listened to all of these podcasts. That's one of the values of the way it is. You'll be able to listen to an episode and then you can be anywhere. You can be dictating to a crowd of thousands at a Nobel laureate fate. You could be um, at a uh, father-son golf tournament. You could be lecturing to millions of evangelicals. Or you could just be at a bar, a pub, if you will, with uh, a couple of friends or at a family dinner. And someone will ask you something about politics, fashion, science, alcohol, imbibery, social culture just about anything, and you will just be able to quote straight from the podcast and just, whoa, they will feel the awe. They will feel the awe. Uh, you can also index them too, so that if you're in a family dinner conversation or at the bar, you might say, oh, just hold that thought for a minute, dash off to the toilet, the loo, water closet, bathroom, whatever you want to call it, and then just check out that part of the podcast, have it bookmarked, so you can review it, then come out stride out of the bathroom. If you're a guy, just kind of stride out, striding out to the table. Or if you're a female, kind of just kind of catwalk. Just catwalk out of the bathroom, sit down at the table, and then you'll be able to argue any point. Any point. People just... Whew. Your only problem, your only problem will be if someone else at the table in the conversation is also an avid listener of the way it is, in which case he or she should team up with you in a virtual, co-effective, co-supportive, co-dependent echo chamber, and you will crush the conversation with anyone there. Anyone there. Even if they're just sitting at the table sneezing. Sneezing? Why are you talking about that? Because today in Science Bitches, researchers have identified features that could make someone a virus super spreader. This source, the University of Central Florida.
In a wonderful, wonderful study, researchers have used computer-generated models to numerically simulate sneezes. <laughs> Don't want to work in that lab. In different types of people and determine associations between people's physiological features and how far the bitches' sneeze droplets travel and linger in the air. They found that people's features, such as a stopped-up nose <laughs> or a full set of teeth, could increase their potential to spread viruses by affecting just how far the droplets travel when they sneeze. Wow, this could make people super spreaders of viruses, such as COVID-19, depending on their features. This study, which was just published this month in the Physics of Fluids, something I always like to read when I'm sitting in the bathroom, a riveting read, engineering used computer-generated models to numerically simulate the sneezes. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the way people are infected by the virus that causes COVID-19, the Wu flu, is through exposure to respiratory droplets such as from sneezes and coughs that are carrying the infectious virus. Well, we all know that, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Knowing more about the factors affecting how far these droplets travel, social distancing can inform efforts to control their spread, says Michael Kinzel, an assistant professor with UCF's Department of Mechanical Engineering and study co-author, the Sneezemeister, this is the first study that aims to understand the underlying why of how far sneezes travel, Kinzel says. I don't know if he's German or Austrian, but I felt quoting this with an accent sounded far more authoritarian. We show that the human body has influences, such as a complex duct system, not a duct system like Louis, Dewey, and Huey, but a duct system associated with the nasal flow that actually disrupts the jet from your mouth and prevents it from dispersing droplets far distances. For example, when people have a clear nose, such as from blowing it into a tissue, you know, the speed and distance sneeze droplets travel decrease, according to the study. This is because a clear nose provides a path in addition to the mouth, for the sneeze to exit. But, 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 when people's noses are congested, the area that the sneeze can exit is restricted, thus causing sneeze droplets expelled from the mouth to increase in velocity. It's like a jet. Similarly, teeth, something that's not known too much in New Zealand, teeth also restrict the sneeze's exit area and cause droplets to increase in velocity. Teeth create a narrowing effect in the jet that makes it stronger and more turbulent, Kinzel says. They actually appear to drive transmission. So if you see someone without teeth, such as if you are walking through Christchurch, Wellington, or Auckland, you can actually expect a weaker jet from the sneeze from them. He didn't actually mention those three cities. I made that up. Really? Yeah, I did. It's my podcast. To perform the study, the researchers used 3D modeling and numerical simulations to create four mouth 
and nose types. I hope they used my nose. Let's get a big Jew nose. I bet Jews are super spreaders. Well, they were at that synagogue in New York. I don't know if you saw the news, but there was a secret Hasidic synagogue in New York. And yeah, I'm Jewish, so this is Jew on Jew crime. I can say this. They had 7,000 fucking people at a wedding. Now, I'm all for freedom of religion. Um, I'm all for defending the Jews because we've been beaten down for millennia. And uh, I'm all for a happy wedding. But in New York, cramming 7,000 Hasidic Jews in a super tight area, I mean super tight, for a wedding, I don't think that was prudent. I don't think that was a good thing. But what's worse is Governor Cuomo is going to try and make sure they're all arrested. So round up the Jews again. Yeah! Anyway, we were talking about recreating four mouths and nose types. Um, the reason I hate that thing with the Hasidic Jews things is it's something that gives people a chance to say bad things about the Jews. It's just not a good look. It's just not a good look. I think they should have worked something else out. And it, it's the sprinkles of elitism and, you know, too much chosen people thing. And it's not a good look. So sorry. Sorry there. Um, I don't approve. Because if it was something that the Muslims were doing, I'd say burn the mosque. Um of course, tongue-in-cheek, of course, tongue-in-cheek. And speaking of tongue-in-cheek, we are getting back to this 3D recreation of the nose and mouth. So, a person with teeth and a clear nose, a person with no teeth and a clear nose, then they also did a 3D simulation of a person with no teeth and a congested nose, and a person with teeth and a congested nose. So one more time, Four nose and mouth types. A person with teeth and a clear nose, a person with no teeth and a clear nose, a person with no teeth and a congested nose, and a person with teeth and a congested nose. Okay, we're clear? We're clear. When they simulated sneezes in the different models, they found that the spray distance of droplets expelled when a person has a congested nose and with a full set of teeth is, wait for it, about 60% greater. 60%! than when they do not. See, it's got me sniffling now. <laughs> Actually, it's the pollen. You start talking about it, it's like you start talking about chili and you and you kind of sweat up. You start talking about congestion. <laughs> Get congested. Oh, actually, it's because I just had a sip of coffee. I actually did take a break. You couldn't tell from the seamless edit, but I went out to the kitchen to get a coffee. I didn't go up the street. I didn't go see my friend Sue Hay, but at uh, Sam's Cafe in St. Kilda, my favorite friend and my best friend and expert barista. That's just not all he does. And I didn't go up to Super Random just up the street because they were closed. But I uh, went into the kitchen and used my five-year-old and starting to fade, showing a few leaks, DeLonghi Nespresso machine, but it's still powering on, still powering on. And I have an admission to make. When I bought the little Nespresso um, capsules, which are normally like 60 cents, 70 cents. Some of them are 80 cents. When I was at Chadston last week buying some coffee, I have the admission. They had a sleeve of capsules that were $3.50 each. $3.50 each for one Nespresso capsule. I bought a sleeve, a sleeve of 10, because it's the Kona coffee, the Kona gold. And uh, if you've been to Hawaii, Kona Gold 
to me is second to none other than making Jamaican Blue Mountain Coffee. And they're showing me this. And I go, $3.50 for a little capsule kind of defeats the whole purpose of this thing. And he says, here, try one. I said, all right. So I had one. Oh, it was amazing. You'd pay $10 for that at a coffee shop. Um, maybe you wouldn't. I might. Or you would in Hawaii or whatever if you bought the beans. But anyway, so I bought a sleeve and I just made one now. And absolutely, mm, taste this. Epic. Absolutely epic. Anyway, back to our science pitches. 60% greater than when they do not. The results indicate that when someone keeps their nose clear, such as by blowing it into a tissue, oh, thank God, that they could actually be reducing the distance their germs travel. The more you blow, the less your germs go. The more you blow, the less your germs will go. The more you blow, the less your germs will go. The researchers also simulated three types of saliva. Ooh, gross. Thin, medium, and thick. I really don't want to post any photos of this. They found that thinner saliva resulted in sneezes composed of smaller droplets, which created a spray and stayed in the air longer than medium and thick saliva coming out like mayonnaise just dropping down from the gravity for instance three seconds after a sneeze when thick saliva was reaching the ground and thus diminishing its threat the thinner saliva was still floating in the air floating floating in the air as a potential disease transmitter this work ties back to the researcher's project to create a COVID-19 cough drop that would give people thicker saliva to reduce the distance droplets from a sneeze or cough would travel and thus decrease disease transmission likelihood. How amazing is that? All of this was to create a different type of cough drops. I used to like the Luden's cherry cough drops when I was a kid, which was pretty much candy. It was just pure sugar, but I used to love the Luden's. He had those little... Little brothers on there, the Luden's brothers. Now, the findings yield novel insight into variability of exposure distance and indicate how physiological factors affect transmissibility rates. These show exposure levels are highly dependent on the fluid dynamics. It always gets it always gets back to fluid dynamics, Trevec, that can vary depending on several human factors. Well, we needed to know this. We needed to know this. And this work was funded by the National Science Foundation. Fantastic. And that was today's Achoo! edition of Science Bitches. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Well, what is your podcaster wearing? Your podcaster has gone absolutely casual today with uh, just a nice old white Prada t-shirt and a Stone Island pair of shorts. Um, the white Prada t-shirt 
I think we all know the label Prada, comes from my favorite three packs. You can buy these three packs of the Prada t-shirts in white or black, which are great value. And uh, um, you can dress up in them or you can dress down in them. And uh, very, very comfy. Absolutely some of the best cotton. But I've got my powder blue or sky blue Stone Island shorts on. Now, some of you might be familiar with Stone Island from some more oblique sources. Stone Island was founded way back in 1982 by Massimo Asti. And uh, it's a luxury Italian apparel brand now owned by Ravarino, part of the Carlo Rivetti Sportswear Company. But Stone Island is known by its compass patch that buttons onto the upper sleeve of the left arm or on the left leg. Originally, these patches were green-edged badges from around the year badges from around the year 2000 onwards. They became black-edged. There's also a run for collectors of rarer white badges that were originally made on certain jackets to celebrate the new millennium. And the white badge is now apparent on jackets that use materials that Stone Island develops themselves in-house. Novel jacket designs include the liquid reflective jacket that uses thousands of small shards of glass that reflect light. These, some of these jackets are like absolute pieces of art. Unbelievable. But this is just a simple pair, very comfy, powder blue, sky blue, cotton shorts. Now, from the mid-1990s, the make was very popular in the football casual subculture in England and throughout the rest of Europe. And the brand was also often associated with hooliganism and can be seen in many football hooliganism-based films such as Green Street Hooligans and The Football Factory. Green Street Hooligans is an epic film, by the way. Canadian rapper Drake is always, always, also often seen regularly wearing Stone Island and helped popularize the brand in hip-hop culture. Well, I am not a football hooligan, nor am I a hip-hop culturist, but I absolutely love this label. In fact, Massimo Osti, who started his first label, CP Company, in 1974, Stone Island was simply a diffusion line of his main main label. And uh, very, very groovy, super comfortable, casual stuff. Now, one for the ladies. What is the podcaster's wife wearing? Well, I don't know if she's wearing it at this exact second, but just a few hours ago, she was wearing a lovely dress from Borgo de Nord. Borgo de Nord. And it was a label created by two ladies, Carbon Borganovo, a former Miami native, and her longtime friend, Joanna Norona. They're both London-based now, leaving the sun of Miami behind them. But their love of life and bright Miami vibes live on through their clothing line. In fact, the founders built the brand inspired by the spirit of women ranging from artists like Frida Kahlo, the chick with the big eyebrows, and Lee Miller to the real women in their lives. So uh, just a very, very bright, kind of Christmassy red and green dress that um, I believe came from online shopping during the lockdown and um, absolutely stunning. And, and if, it's got a real Miami feel. It's got a real Miami feel. I would love a holiday in Miami right now, but uh, that'll have to come in the future. So her wearing that dress is as good as a trip to Miami right now. So you ladies, check it out in the show notes. Now, 
going from lovely fashion and fun and games to the dour, disastrous, desert despair of war games in the Mideast. Uh, a lot of the news here in Australia, and I know it's made the international news, is the case of the somewhere between 13 to 19 Australian soldiers that um, may have, may have allegedly committed war crimes, and of which there's been nine horribly sad suicides of soldiers in the past year, um, most likely tied into these events. And I just want to touch on it because every day, every day, I'm so grateful to live in Australia, so grateful to grow up in the U.S., um, so grateful that my wife is from the U.K., Three three countries that have always been free in modern times, that have never been under the oppression uh, and under the thumb of an enemy, that have always tried to do the right thing. Democracy is the right thing. So forget you Antifa nihilists, um, hence the Nietzsche references early on, because it's so prescient to what's going on today and in the election, the U.S. election and in um, the United Kingdom right now and uh, the despair that's come from the international woo flu. Is it meant to be? Is it um, a case of something that um, was predestined? Is it is what it is, or is it only the meaning that we put on it? We can argue this for hours. But the fact that we're able to walk around and talk and eat and dine and complain about lockdown and drive cars and fall in love and create and paint and have this podcast and write films and see films and you know, even when you're locked down, see films at home and order food in, you know, are in retrospect as pissed off as I was during lockdown. The the ability to be locked down in a lovely apartment and watch TV in stereo and eat good food and, you know, be healthy at any time is a result of freedom, democracy. And that's uh, the result of people that fought for freedom and may have been misguided and may have been on some very strange wartime situations and may have been the result of some really bad planning and judgment or may have just been something bad within the man himself or themselves as we all have a dark side inside us. But until it all comes out and until it's completely judged in a court of law, I think we really have to go light and not condemn the Australian Defence Force, especially as a whole, when so many amazing, brave, astonishing people, soldiers everywhere, try and just do the job so that we can do whatever we want and raise our families and worship God if we do or not worship God or, you know, whatever, whatever. So, um, and also... I'm of the mind that in war, and I'm not going to say the fog of war because I've never been in war, is that when you're over there in extraordinary circumstances, and I take a lot of this from the film that I reviewed a couple of weeks ago, The Outpost, where you're under constant attack and constant attack and constant attack, and villagers that might seem like your friends turn out to be, you know, um, collaborating with the Taliban or ISIS and the enemy will kill you in a second. And you can't tell 
there's going to be innocent people killed. There's innocent people killed on the roads every day here. There's innocent people killed walking across the street. There's going to be innocent people killed in war. Now, if somebody goes out and just torches an entire village um, and blasts a bunch of people, a la William Kelly, My Lai, the Vietnam scourge, I think they have to pay for it. But I'm not sure exactly how they should pay for it. And would they have done this under normal circumstances? Um, I'm not to say, oh, no, fuck it, it's just a bunch of Afghans. Who cares? No, I'm not. Might have thought that from time to time. But in all reality, it's things happen in war. I don't really want to know about most of them. And... I also want justice to prevail, but I also don't want this to create a stage for completely soiling the defense force and the good work that soldiers do and um, risking their lives for us. And that's all I really have to say about that before it gets lost in a swarm of naysayers and judgmental witch hunts. Yes, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. What did you hear first? Well, maybe not first, but just about first. And that was The Queen's Gambit. Well, The Queen's Gambit just set Netflix's viewing record for scripted limited series in this exclusive story from The Hollywood Reporter. The seven-episode drama hit number one on the streamer's rankings in more than 60 countries and set a viewership record. The seven-episode drama about a chess prodigy is the top scripted limited series ever for Netflix, who said over 62 million member accounts worldwide have watched at least a few minutes of the show. I'm both delighted and dazed by the response. It's just all way beyond what any of us could imagine, said co-creator, showrunner, and director Scott Frank. But speaking for my fellow producers and the entire cast and crew of the show, every one of whom made me look better than I actually am, we are more, we are most grateful that you took the time to watch our show, and we all look forward to bringing you our Yahtzee limited series next. I think that's absolutely epic. By the way, among limited series at Netflix, only Tiger King, with 64 million views in its first 28 days, has drawn more eyeballs than The Queen's Gambit, and the Tiger King movie with Nicolas Cage is in the works, and we can't wait for that. Now, what else is happening? The Crown, as I said before, we are binged up into season four of The Crown, which brings us into the Margaret Thatcher era. I love Margaret Thatcher. I love that that chick was tough, that she came from nothing, worked her way to the top, and did not take leaners and losers lightly. Some people might think otherwise. I know a friend of mine, Gary, who's a pseudo-Irish, Scottish, northern country, Newfoundland. I don't know really where he's from. He's one of those northern English coal town kind of guys who's... Uh, a good friend and a writer here, but he says that Thatcher 
And I suppose if you were a coal miner, although not a coal miner's daughter, you might say that Thatcher was the worst thing that happened. But you got to have medicine to cure what ills you. And uh, Thatcher's reposts and repartee with the Queen, played by the irrepressible Olivia Coleman, is fantastic. Now, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. In episode, I think it's six or seven, a very, very sad and revealing story about two of the cousins that um, were born profoundly retarded and um, mentally defective. I don't know any polite way of saying it. It wasn't just Down syndrome. They were in a bad way and were declared dead on record so no one would know and hidden away in a um, in a home for such disabled human beings for so long. Now you say, well, back then, what could they have done? Not a lot. Could they have raised them at home? No, they wouldn't. Would it have sullied the royal image? Probably. And the politics behind it, how Edward's abdication turned into the actual prodigy of the crown and how those that were out came in the circle and those who were in the circle got out of the circle and how these two these two girls were sentenced to this life um, is very thought-provoking and to me very, very sad. It's still, uh, I'd heard the rumor, I didn't know it was true, and yes, it was true. There's also, it seems that the royal family is a bit in the flipty dipty lipty upset about some of the artistic license as opposed to autistic license, as I was talking about before. Artistic license, no, let's not confuse autism and Down syndrome, but it sounded good anyway. About the artistic license that the producers and the showrunner have taken with some of the facts. Well, you've got to enhance some things for story and narrative, and it seems, particularly in one episode, of a <clears throat> rather allegedly intelligent, but rather poor-off gentleman who was a Thatcher victim, so to speak, culturally and economically, broke into the Queen's bedroom. No, that's not a porn film. Tonight, Roger Meyer presents the Queen's bedroom. But no, broke into the Queen's bedroom and actually had a bit of a chit-chat with her before security came. And it seems that as we looked it up, as the royals did, that there was um, some difference in what allegedly happened versus what the queen said happened versus what this guy said happened. Who knows? It's a great episode. you got to check out The Crown. Absolutely fantastic. And um, really gives an insight into the situation that Diana, Princess Diana, um, Princess Diana, I should have worn seatbelts that night, came into, which I admit I was a bit naive on. I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, she's 18 or 19. She knows what she's getting into. Well, she didn't. And um, no, she did not. So uh, I've got some more, I've got some sympathy that I didn't have before for uh, the late Princess Diana. So it's a must watch. It's absolutely a must watch. Very, very good. Now I was going to give you my review or my, my tout of Mank the new David Fincher film, but for time and accuracy and second viewing prowess, I'm going to wait till next week. Also, I'm going to only give you a little hint of what's going on with the Hollywood con queen. 
in this abbreviated chapter three, the photographer that had been contacted by the would-be studio head had said, he said, I have a hard trying trusting people, the photographer said during a recent phone call, momentarily breaking down. This woman, she, she really messed with my head. As you recall from previous two episodes, this is the journey of a lot of people that were conned by someone pretending to be head of a famous Hollywood studio or studio executives that plied trust and tons of money out of innocent, would-be, D-level and C-level people in Hollywood. About halfway through his Indonesia trip, the con woman asked this photographer if he could stay on for a few more days, so he traveled farther afield to Yogyakarta, a historic city on the island of Java. The longer he stayed, the more the relationship began to evolve, even as it started to take strange turns. At one point, she told him she knew he had parents on the East Coast and that perhaps one day she could become his quote-unquote mother in L.A., called him twice daily, sometimes more. The imposter appears to have had an unquenchable thirst for engaging with her victims, often for hours a day, weeks on end. His phone sometimes rang at four in the morning. Once, when he told her he was jet-lagged and tired, she grew angry. I don't want to work with tired people, she warned him. In Hollywood, we don't get tired. We're driven. If you're going to be tired, I can find someone else for this job. He apologized and then went, then from woke up early to do push-ups to get his energy levels up in anticipation of her call. He cut back on sleep. He noticed she questioned him on every modulation of his voice, however slight. He started to pay attention to his speech in ways he had never done before. Quote, I would have to defend or explain everything he says. Each time he asked why the promised money wasn't showing up, she provided an elaborate excuse. Each more well thought out than the last. She'd entered the wrong ABA number on the wire transfer. She'd need to do a new wire. That meant another five business days. But the holidays were coming. That would delay it further. A wire from a business account took extra time, and so on and so on. I took her word for it, he says. This was a lot of money to me. But for a producer worth millions, it wasn't anything. I assume she just didn't have perspective on that. Eventually, he returned to the U.S., whereupon she told him she wanted him to turn right around and head back to Bali. A well-known producer was interested in that quintessential Bali look. By now, the photographer had grown suspicious. He'd spent a lot of money. He drafted an email to the woman and told her he needed to be sure she was really Amy, Amy Pascal. He needed to meet with her in person or on a video Skype. He meant no insult, he told her. He just required some kind of authentication. She was really, really angry, he said. He stood his ground, pointing out all the broken promises. She quickly switched tactics, saying it'd be a shame if all of his work so far was wasted. Are you getting with the story here? She came up with more elaborate excuses. This master manipulator found a way, he said. I don't know because I pushed back really hard, but she really screwed me up. The trip ended badly. Later, he was back in L.A. He'd blown through his life savings. She kept calling and calling, promising to meet in New York. She didn't. Then towards the end of January, he emailed her, but the email bounced back. I thought to myself, 
Yep, this is it. She's ghosted me. At least now I know. Relief washed over him until that night when she called again. In addition to the tens of thousand dollars he forfeited, the photographer struggles to wrap his head around the fact that she toyed with him so aggressively long after his funds were depleted and after she'd gotten everything she would ever get when it was simply a game she appeared to enjoy. Quote, at what point does a crazy evil genius say, I got enough out of this person, let's move on to someone else. I hope you'll stick with me on this story because it just gets darker and darker and it takes a little bit of setup, which is why we're doing it over a number of parts because it's just a bit too much for one, two, or even three podcasts. So if you think this photographer really got screwed, imagine sitting in a hotel room by yourself and you're totally naked and there's about 20 people watching you, unbeknownst to you. And But you're making a movie or a TV series. And you might want to know then that whatever you do on your own or in concert with one or more people, either continuing to be naked or partially clothed, might need some guidelines. Not, not, well, according to Jackie Keast in Independent Film Magazine, the MAAA, the Media, Entertainment, and Arts Alliance, which... Um, is a collection of people that um, could have been in that same home with the uh, cousins of the royals, which I talked to you about in The Crown, because they've got about that much competence and sense. They have released their intimacy gu guidelines. This is the same MEAA that tried to bar foreign actors from performing in Australia, saying we should only have Australian actors, notwithstanding that many of those foreign actors with marquee bankable names would help the film get made here, help get financing, and ultimately employ thousands and thousands of Australian craft people. But that would take common sense and intelligence, which the MEAA is just a bit short of. However, they've been busy. Even while there's been no filming, they've been busy because Australia now has its first ever set of intimacy guidelines for stage and screen, a result of 18 months of industry consultation by a dedicated committee. The guidelines aim to establish new processes for work involving nudity, intimacy, simulated sexual activity, and sexual violence so that actors are best prepared and supported. They cover off on the best practice for situations spanning the entire filmmaking process from casting, casting, yes, in auditions through the post-production and marketing. So if someone's going to get fucked on this film, at least they're going to know how, when, where, and signed off on it. The Screen Producers of Australia, SPA, and the Australian Directors Guild, ABG, the Casting Guild of Australia, and the MEAA National Stunt Committee, which rhymes with, have each endorsed the document. All were part of the consultation process alongside individual actors, fight directors, theater directors, stunt coordinators, intimacy coordinators. There's a, 
there's a uh, position, pun intended, that didn't exist a while ago, intimacy directors and the Australian Writers Guild, who's used to be on the wrong end of getting fucked. The guidelines follow on from a series of workshops and seminars with leading, and I do mean leading, intimacy coordinator Ita O'Brien from Normal People, hosted by the MEAA in 2018. At the time, she urged Australia, she had some urges, to adopt formal guidelines surrounding intimate scenes. Many of the MEAA's recommendations are drawn on best practice from overseas, including O'Brien's Intimacy Onset Guidelines in the UK, the Equity New Zealand Intimacy Guidelines, a riveting read, guidance notes for screen directors, intimacy coordinator standards and protocols, and the pillars created by Intimacy Directors International. Quote, I'm very proud our union, that's always the start of something worrying, has led the way on the development of these guidelines because they've been needed for such a long time, says Australian actor, director, producer, and MEAA equity president Jason Clarwine. The expectation is that these guidelines, guidelines or rules, asked Daniel Andrews, he knows, are used on every production in the country. At the heart of the MEA's guidelines is the idea of open communication and the informed consent of performers. They note that what an actor considers intimate will vary, shaped by cultural background, abilities or disabilities, gender identification, age, and sexuality. As such, it dismisses intimate scenes as, quote, defined broadly by the performers themselves by the performers themselves, not people that are actually financing and making the film, to cover any activity, interaction, or exposure occurring within their close personal space. Intimate scenes can include, this is, this is the meaty bits, for instance, romantic caresses, handling an infant, or bathing a frail-aged character. They may also not involve other actors, such as intimate interaction of the performer with themselves, as we opened up in this sequence, in a sexual or exposing manner, such as masturbation, a striptease, or using a breast pump, or any scene where an actor appears nude, semi-nude, scantily clad, well, or even in underwear. Hmm, but not a bathing suit. According to the guidelines, actors must be informed of and consent to every intimate scene, every intimate scene and its specific requirements in advance. Now, specifically, they outline how actors be provided opportunity to participate in discussions with the director, producer, and heads of departments, as well as an intimacy coordinator, director, if engaged. Now, that part makes sense. Always good to know what you're getting into as an actor or actress. Not that you should run the show, but you should know what you're getting into. These conversations should cover the director's vision, including a shot-by-shot description and consultation with the DOP, the extent of any nudity required, and what wardrobe, such as modesty barriers, will be used, the type of contact and emotion required by the scene. The type of contact and emotion. Oh, I guess that's, that's what the director should be uh, helpful with and what the rehearsal process will be. The document strongly encourages production companies to hire both stunt, 
coordinator, fight directors, and intimacy co-directors if a scene is to depict nudity or semi-nudity, sexual activity, or contains other sensitive or exposing factors. And let me tell you, is there going to be a wide range of what somebody considers sensitive in the next couple years? It also argues there be an adequate budget, always good, and scheduling provided to ensure intimate scenes are created in a manner consistent with best practice. Hmm. The guidelines stipulate all intimate scenes be shot on closed sets. Well, why not on... Why not in the MCG? And that when shooting semi-nudity outside of a sex-simulated scene, the set be closed at the stipulation of the performer. That's a good one. I'm with that, too. See, there's always good in these things. It's just that, like hate speech and Me Too and anything else, when you try and legislate everything to the letter, it's going to open up a can of worms. Now, the producer might also consider whether the gender composition of the crew on the closed set makes for an inclusive environment, which means that they are going to select crew based on gender. When it comes to auditioning, the document is clear that there are no circumstances where nudity or semi-nudity, less than underwear or swimsuit, should ever be required, proposed, or agreed to. Well, it's good that Harvey Weinstein's retired because uh, that certainly changes the ways that some auditions took place in the industry. Again, tick, that's a goodie. However, the re here's, here's the rub, pun intended. The wearing of revealing clothing in an audition is appropriate only if it is intrinsic to the role. The wearing of revealing clothing in an audition. Hmm, so... If you're auditioning for a burlesque dancer or a swimmer commercial, that'll be noted. So if you're going to be the leading actress or actor in something else and you're dressing a bit alluring, that's a no-no. So I guess you just want to look as bad as possible. Also included are the contractual obligations when engaging performers to appear nude, semi-nude, or in sex-simulated scenes. Actor and intimacy coordinator Michaela Banis, who studied under O'Brien, believes the industry has been in desperate need of boundaries and processes for the creation of intimate work. Well, I would agree with that. The problem is putting them to the letter and enforcing them. So I just want to close with the fact that did you know that creatives across the board are really relieved to know and that is not in quotations, nor italicize. Really relieved to know that there is now a pathway to make our sets safer for everyone. Not that I ever thought that they were really unsafe over the course of the years, but what do I know? And looking forward to putting them in practice. Well, there you go. There you go. And uh, on that note, so that um, we make sure that Nobody is screwed in the industry without first signing a consent form and knowing what they're wearing, who is screwing them, how many people are watching, and whether it's part of the film or simply the negotiation process. I want to share with you that we'll be continuing next week, as we always do, with episode 37. We're going to be talking about the finality of the U.S. election, which will pretty much be 
at that condensation point by then, the preview of the Senate runoffs in the state of Georgia and the U.S., which will decide the U.S. future far more than the presidency in January. The thousands of unemployed Japanese businessmen who have gathered in a park for over a decade when their wives and partners thought that they were actually at work, however, they were homeless. And what has happened to them over the past decade? That Gretsch guitar story that I just never seemed to get to, but fits into Today in History next week, and the Lost McCubbin painting. All this and more next week, and I hope you have a blessed Thanksgiving. I hope you're getting ready for Christmas and Hanukkah. By next week, you should have all your Hanukkah bushes and Christmas trees up. We'll talk about the amazing annual Christmas tree that happens at our favorite hotel in London, Claridge's, and what could be in store for them this year. Could it be from Pfizer? I think not, but we'll go into the history of that. We will also be talking about, as promised, Gretsch, and especially Gretsch guitars, because on this day, it's a Postscript on this day, Friedrich Gretsch founded Gretsch Musical Instruments in 1883 in Brooklyn, New York. The company now headed out of Savannah, Georgia. But um, we're going to talk about the evolution of their business and the guitars and their innovations. And I'm a big, big Gretsch fan. Um, along with Epiphone and Gibson, which I'm looking at here in the... Uh, man cave, but uh, Gretsch plays a significant part in my life and yours, whether you know it or not. And one more postscript. Um, we did close on a Thanksgiving sadness with the loss of the god, Diego Maradona. Maradona, the soccer player, probably the greatest of all time. One of the greatest sportsmen of all time. Better than Pele. Yep, 100%. And uh, if you haven't seen the documentary on his life, Diego Maradona, that um, was done by the same director that did Amy, the Amy Winehouse film, and Senna, the Ayrton Senna car racing film, you must see it. It uh, is one way to understand the highest highs, the lowest lows, and uh, someone looking for redemption who went too far to the dark side. Um, it's, I saw it on the airplane on the way back from London last year, last Christmas, and uh, it affected me for hours even after I landed. I was just um, absolutely in tears. Maradona flew higher than Icarus. He had the, the highest of highs and then the lowest of lows and then came back and forth and reconciliation with family and son. And uh, it's just an amazing film. I know I use that word amazing a lot. It is amazing. An interesting coincidence is Maradona died the same day that George Best had died. George Best, the North Irish footballer, best known for his amazing quote that I spent a lot of money on booze, birds, women, and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. And uh, both those players died on November 25th. Funny that. And don't be a nihilist. Everything does have meaning. The world does have meaning because it has the meaning that we put on it. And you mean the world to me.
at least once a week, every Friday. Enjoy your families. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the fact that we're alive. And I hope most of you will be next week. Don't forget to subscribe. Perfect time to do it. Uh, the way it is dot blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. When you subscribe, you get uh, the website, all the show notes, all the groovy things, the photos and links and stuff like that. And uh, that means that you'll live another day. Vaya con Dios. Arrivederci. Adios. Hasta luego. Auf Wiedersehen. See you next week.